I'm going to play it and, and let it. Uh, you'll hear the first explosion, and then a few seconds later, you'll hear the second explosion. On April 15, 2013, two pressure cooker bombs exploded at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Five people were killed, and 280 people were injured. It was a terrible act of violence that caused all of Boston to be shut down as police sought the two suspects, Tamerlan Sarnayev and Zokir Sarnayev. But the media was quick to point to Islamic faith as a motivating factor for the terror attack. It is your statement. It will be that. In Russia today, the mother of the brother Tsarnaev, who first encouraged her older son to follow Islam, was defiant in claiming their innocence. My son just was Muslim. My son was Muslim. That's it. Never mind that the brother Tsarnaev's father identified himself as a traditional Muslim, someone who eschewed extremism. The media was determined to point to Islam as the chief powder keg for the Boston Marathon bombing. It lacked the understanding, the tolerance, and the intellectual acumen to consider that what made the Sarnayev brothers violent and dangerous had nothing to do with Islam at all. And as the pundits took in the news, the conversation became more reckless and irresponsible. He said uh, his worldview, Islam, personal priorities, career, and money. On an April 19, 2013 episode of Real Time with Bill Maher, Maher invited Brian Levin, the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, to discuss Islamophobia on air. Look, it's not like people who are Muslim who do wacky things have a monopoly on it. We have hypocrites across faith, Jewish, Christian, who say, uh, who say they're out for God and they uh, end up doing you know what? Nice that, things. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what? That's that's liberal bullshit right there. I mean, yes, they're all there, 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 all there faith no is hypocrites. No, there are. You made they're a just on that. the conversation quickly devolved. It turns out that Maher himself was the Islamophobic. Well, I guess uh, I have a girl for you, Pam Geller. That you could maybe uh, meet. Um, no, I really disagree. I with you. don't I... know what that means. <laughs> well, she's an Islamophobe, but no, no, I. I'm not an Islamophobe. That's wrong. I am a truth lover. All religions are not alike. Uh, as many people have pointed out, the Book of Mormon, did you see the show? No, it's hard to get tickets. Okay. Can you imagine if they did the Book of Islam? <laughs> Could they do that? There's only one religion that, that, that threatens violence and carries it out for things like that. Could they do the Book of Islam on Broadway? Possibly so. But he... Possibly so. <laughs> here, here... Tell, me what, tell me what color the, the sky is in your world. You are making an error in that Islam has over 1.4 billion adherents. There's a heterogeneity to it. Are there extremists who are horrible people who would slit your throats? Yes, but there are also folks that are fine, upstanding people. Of and course. I, 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 I'm, I'm very That's worried true. that you have I, a national audience where no, we're, no, no. we're, we're no, promoting no, no. Islamic hatred. Uh, we're not... No, you're wrong about that. And you're wrong about your facts. Now, obviously, most... Muslim people are not terrorists. But ask most Muslim people in the world, if you insult the prophet, do you have what's coming to you? It's more than just a fringe element. Now, when Bill Maher spouts such tendentious statements to an audience of four million people each week, predicated on an ignorant understanding of Islam, what does this do to reinforce Muslim stereotypes? Where did Islamophobia come from? And why does it continue to flourish in American and British culture? To get some answers to these questions, I met with Arun Kunani, author of the book The Muslims Are Coming. It turns out that not only is Islamophobia alive and well 12 and a half years after 9-11, but that prominently positioned people 
are reinforcing Muslim stereotypes, encouraging law enforcement agencies to adopt flawed radicalization models that are not predicated upon reality. These prejudicial policies have caused innocent Americans, whose only crime is to practice Islam, to be harassed, needlessly harangued by authorities, and in some cases, falsely imprisoned. Okay, so I am here with Arun Kunani, who is most recently the author of The Muslims Are Coming. Arun, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. So uh, let's go ahead and start off uh, with why Islamophobia exists. The first and most obvious question is why any political strain of Islam, any vocal element which objects to an attack has come to be associated with terrorism. So, you know, I have to ask, why has this continued 12 and a half years after September 11th? Why are all Muslims roped up into this same misleading category? You know, one, one of the interesting things, I think, is, is um, we, we had that early period of the war on terror with, um, under the Bush years where, um, you know, we had this quite intense um, narrative of a clash of civilizations between Islam and the West. And Obama came in trying to have a different kind of analysis. Um, and um, actually, what's interesting is that the, um, the kind of popular Islamophobia in the media, the kind of amount of um, racist violence against Muslims in the United States actually all went up under Obama. Yeah. Um, so um, in, my, in my analysis, what, what's going on here is, is as well as the kind of neoconservative uh, narrative of a clash of civilizations, we also need to think about the liberal Islamophobia right? yes. that, that's been actually much more powerful under the Obama administration over the last few years. Yeah. Why do you, what do you think the ultimate appeal of the Obama trigger effect here for Islamophobia? Why have liberals fanned the flames here, do you think? Is it just a misunderstanding of uh, policy? Is it, is, is it a number of, few, of people? I can get into this further later on in, in this, but I wanted to sort of get a general yeah, at, idea here. Yeah, I think at root what's going on is, is there's a, um, a kind of flawed analysis of what the causes of terrorism are, actually, right? And, and so there's a liberal analysis that says basically there's some kind of religious extremism that causes terrorism. Yeah. Um, and therefore... Um, you need to intervene in, in Muslim populations um, to make sure that people have the right interpretation of Islam. Right? That's actually the kind of basic analysis that we've had um, in this kind of later period of the war on terror, um, which means that you're, you're associating some interpretation of Islam with terrorism. Right? And then from that flows all kinds of um, other things. So, for example, then you get the idea of the good Muslim and the bad Muslim, right? Because the bad Muslim is the one who interprets the religion in the wrong way. So you want to, um, you know, put Muslims under surveillance to check that they have the right interpretation of their religion, etc. right? So I think a lot of what we've seen under Obama flows from that fundamental analysis, which actually doesn't stand up to scrutiny. If it's so flawed and if it does not stand up to scrutiny, why then does it continue to perpetuate? Well, one of the reasons is because, um, f you know, from the liberal point of view, it seems like a better way of doing things than the kind of neoconservative clash of civilizations model, right? It, it has certain practical benefits for, from the point of view of managing this issue, right? This kind of fraught issue with all this kind of fear bound up with it in the popular mind, right? So it enables you to say, well, you know, we're partnering with Muslim communities to... Um, to tackle extremism and so forth, that sounds quite nice. That sounds quite effective, even though 
the the basic assumptions behind it don't stand up to scrutiny. Yeah. So you identify two strains of thinking about Islamic extremism in your book, the culturalists who believe that Muslim communities are incapable of adapting to modern life because their Islamic culture essentially uh, is extreme and it's therefore incompatible, which leads to extremism. Then you have the reformists who look not to Islamic teachings, but ideologues who reinterpret uh, Islam for violent and nefarious purposes. Uh, How could one article, Bernard Lewis's The Roots of Muslim Rage, in 1990, be so prominently responsible for the development of these two ideas? Why do they continue to endure? Why do they continue to be so compelling? I mean, it just, it seems to me that there are so many other arguments against them, yet these two ideological strains continue. Right, right. I mean, yeah, intellectually, the argument has been discredited time and time again. So the reason that these ideas continue to, to circulate is nothing to do with their intellectual merits, but it's more about um, the political convenience of those ideas, right? So we find it much easier to um, think about why people want to direct violence against our society. We find it much easier to answer that question by saying it's their culture rather than at least in part, our politics. Yeah. Right? And, and so I think because it's uncomfortable for us to, to think about what the alternative to these narratives would be, right? the alternative to these narratives would involve us thinking about our foreign policy and the political effects of that and creating contexts within which terrorism becomes more likely. So it's much easier, rather than having that kind of difficult conversation, um, it's much easier to say, oh, no, it's, it's their culture, right? Or it's, their, it's not their culture, but there's a minority who have adopted this ideology of extremism, and that's what's causing it. But we've had 20 years of this strain in both British and American society. Surely uh, that's enough time for people to perhaps call it into question or to actually think about it more sophisticatedly. And I'm wondering why, I, I, I mean, I keep going to the question why, but I am trying to sort of get right. something well, a little bit specific you know, about some why of, this is still an appeal. Yeah, I mean, some of, some of the answers to that are about the ways in which it's been institutionalized in various settings, right? So, for example, we have, um, since 9-11, we've had terrorism studies departments created with um, government funding in, in the United States and in Britain. Um, and, and, you know, those terrorism studies departments... Um, have a set of incentives in terms of the funding they receive and so forth to produce certain kinds of knowledge that serve the interests of the national security apparatus, right? So they will tend to avoid asking deeper questions about um, what lies behind violence, um, what, what is the politics of that, and instead try and de- de- um, deliver um, policy solutions that have embedded within them all kinds of assumptions about what they call radicalization, right? So um, that just kind of institutionalizes these ways of thinking um, in a whole set of um, academic departments. Then you have the, the ways that the, these ways of thinking have been institutionalized in the national security agencies. Um, the FBI, for example, has a radicalization model. It's, it's analysis of um, how someone goes from being an ordinary person to becoming a terrorist embedded within that is these same ideas of, of, you know, some kind of religious ideology drives it. New York Police Department does the same thing. Um, So um, all these ways of thinking are not just kind of free-floating in some kind of intellectual debate. They are embedded in in policy and practice and institutions. Would you say that academics essentially have been influencing this interpretation for uh, the last 20 years? I mean, 
there was a strain of articles recently about academics complaining about how they don't actually get through to the masses, but this would seem to suggest that they are <laughs> in a well, very nefarious way. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, you wanna, if, you, if you're an academic and you want to be influential in government policy, yeah. be an academic in terrorism studies, right? Because yeah. that's, that's where you're in and out of government departments. And, um, uh, but what you have to give up is, is actually quite a large degree of kind of scholarly independence. Yeah. Because... Um, you're effectively serving the intellectual needs of the government rather than any kind of idea of an objective, independent study of what causes terrorism. That doesn't really happen, right? Um, so, um, you know, I think, I think academics have been influential, both, um, you know, the, the kind of terrorism studies academics and the, the kind of brought the other ones like Bernard Lewis, Samuel yeah. Huntington, um, some of those folks who are more on the philosophical level of, and geopolitical level of thinking about these issues. Yeah. So if you get a philosophical academic, it could actually uh, essentially activate a strain of virulent ideology. No, absolutely. I yeah. mean, you know, um, all, all our all our kind of ultimate. I mean, ultimately, all our kind of forms of different forms of racism and so forth have some kind of intellectual history to them, right? They go back to to people who innovate, come up with new ways of being racist yeah. in, an, in, in an intellectual setting. And then that filters down to the streets yeah. right, over time. Right? That's how actually how racism originates. Sure, sure. So you point to a time in the United States when this nation was considered more tolerant and inclusive towards Muslims, immune from Muslim radicalization because of the apparent belief that a free market society was better at absorbing Muslims. Uh, that changed in 2009. There were a number of violent incidents that were believed to be associated with Islam, uh, including Faisal Shahzad's failed efforts to the car bomb in Times Square, you point to a 2010 Bipartisan Policy Center report which concluded that the American melting pot had not provided protection against Muslim radicalization. Why were the government, the pundits, and the policy people so willing to change their tune in so short a time? Because that seems to be also a big part of this problem as well. Right. So, yeah, so something interesting happens um, in the first few years of the Obama administration, right, where you where you find um, that you have, you do have one or two attempted terrorist plots that, that were serious plots, um, like the, the attempted car bombing in Times Square by Faisal Shahzad um, and, uh, and one or two others. Um, you also have a, um, a, a kind of set of developments that are happening in the FBI where they're starting to change how they do counterterrorism, right, and becoming much more um, proactive in sting operations, in um, bringing charges for so-called material support for terrorism, um, which which involves criminalising people's ideological expressive activities rather than um, actual terrorist plots. So, um, so that that those kinds of um, things from the FBI drive up the numbers, right? In terms of um, the kind of annual statistics on the num- number of um, attempted terrorism, uh, attempted terrorist acts, and so drive up the numbers exactly how. Well, because, because, you know, one of the things that we've seen is the FBI doing, um, doing something where they, when they have someone who seems to have what they would call an extremist ideology, yeah. to put informants in that person's life um, and use, use tr- tactics of kind of pressurizing that person into um, committing, uh, being involved in an imaginary plot, right, that would probably not have been something that they would have been predisposed to were it not for the FBI coming in and, and um, creating that environment around that person's life. And this is something that the, the RAND Corporation has a very good phrase to describe. They call it lubricating that person's decision-making right? yeah. um, through government intervention. So, so 
I think the FBI started to put a lot more resources in doing, in doing those kinds of operations. So then the numbers come up. So then it looks like we've got this objective increase in attempted terrorist plots. But actually, it's at least to a large degree uh, the result of a change in FBI strategy around that yeah. time. Right? So, so, so you're saying that the FBI essentially was cooking the books to get higher crime statistics. Is that what you're basically saying? Well, I mean, that, in effect, that's what happened. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure that it's some kind of conspiracy by, the, by you know, senior leaders in the FBI to, to kind of... Um, uh, it's, a, it's a policy but, change. But it's a policy causes... change. And obviously, you can see an incentive structure there, right, where the FBI, as a result of doing that, seems like it's a very efficient counterterrorism organization because it's, you know, got all these, all these terrorist plots happening in the United States and every single one of them it's getting a conviction and that looks good on the, you know, the annual report to Congress. Um, what you won't know unless you look in more detail is the, 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 the fact that most of those plots are ones that the FBI itself has invented. I'd like to get into the fine details of the radicalization model that the FBI was using in just a bit, but I, I want to actually ask, I mean, did they have essentially this policy change before they had the ra- radicalization model? Is, what, what does your research uh, suggest here? The, the radicalization model goes back to the early years yeah. after 9-11. Yeah. Um, the, the policy shift, I mean, we don't know what, what caused it. Um, it, it may be, it may be um, you know, there'd been a number of changes in legislation that had come through um, uh, in that period, and it may be that new opportunities were created through that. Um, you know, it may, it may be, um, you know, that one of, one of the, if you look at the data for, t- for, um, for terrorism um, convictions around that time of sort of 2008, 2009, um, a big, a big chunk of, of the people who are getting prosecuted is, is Somali-Americans yeah. who are traveling to um, Somalia to fight with al-Shabaab, yeah. right? Um, which, which is designated a terrorist organization shortly before that moment. Um, and so therefore then uh, traveling over there becomes a criminal offense. Um, so, so, you know, that also becomes a, another of these kind of... Um, scare scenarios around that time that, you know, maybe we're going to have a huge problem of, of American Somalis going off to fight for al-Shabaab and then coming back and committing acts of violence here, which actually never happened. I will get into the Somali uh, situation sure. in just a sec, but sure. I want to actually uh, unpack the radicalization model a bit. Uh, you cite this 2006 memo from the Counterterrorism Division, which suggests anger, watching inflammatory speeches online, an individual identifying with an extremist cause, internet interaction with extremist elements, an acceptance of radical ideology, and eventually terrorism. What is the academic basis for this model? You also mentioned this 2007 NYPD study called Radicalization in the West that adopted a simplified version of models that were adopted by Quentin Wichtervitz and Mark Sageman. Um, what has made these specific ideas stick? Why has it law enforcement cast a wider research net before adopting these models? Why are these radicalization models in place? They seem to me more like a Sudoku puzzle. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, these radicalization models um, have come from, like you mentioned the two key people here, Mark Sageman, Quinton Viktorovich, um, both of whom have, um, uh, you know, a history within the kind of intelligence world as well as in the academic world. So they kind of cross those, those divisions. Um, and um, I think the reason, the reason those models have been used to the exclusion of any other kind of analysis and, and the reason that they've stuck is because they do something very important for the FBI and the NYPD, at least um, at first glance, which is they give them a tool for prediction, 
right? This is this is what precog the, minority report. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. This is minority report. It's a it's a way of of saying um, we don't know who um, who's tomorrow's. We 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 have a way of knowing who's going to be a terrorist tomorrow, even though they're not a terrorist today, right? And so having that having that claim to predictive power is what is what lies beneath the appeal of these of these studies. And the problem with this the problem of this is that they wake up from the amniotic fluid instead of cry, crying murder, they said Muslims. So you know that's <laughs> right. that's uh, that's right. a problematic. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so so and, and you know they don't stand up. You know, um, in terms of uh, having that predictive capability, um, and that's kind of obvious when you when you think it through. Um, it would be ridiculous to think that someone growing a beard, which is one of the indicators, um, you know, is a is a predictor of someone on the way to becoming a terrorist, or someone wearing traditional Islamic clothing, um, or joining a pro-Muslim social group. These are the various kinds of things that these studies talk about. So, um, you know, they don't they don't have this predictive power, but because they're perceived as as doing so. Um, they become very important in the kind of in, in these institutional settings within law enforcement agencies. Perceived where, by who? By by law enforcement agencies yeah. and and by um, and by policymakers in DC. You know, so the FBI has been instructed by the by the um, you know the federal government since um, since very soon after 9/11 to adopt a pre, what is called a preemptive approach to counterterrorism, right? Which means don't wait until someone's committing a crime. Right, go back to some point before that person's committed a crime, and arrest them there, right, yeah. or intervene in their lives there, right. Um, so that is, the, you know, from the from the point of view of the FBI, there's a dilemma there of like, well, how how on earth do you um, criminalize someone who hasn't committed a crime yet, but you but you think may do in the future? You have to have some kind of analytic way of predicting behavior. Right, and, yeah. and so that's the dilemma for them. But if it's a corrupted analytical model, surely there is someone inside the FBI or even the NYPD who is basically saying, you know, this doesn't really cut mustard. We're actually only doing this to get our numbers up. I mean, is, it, were you well, able to under? I, you yeah. know, I, I spent a, um, a bit of time interviewing a number of different FBI agents who work on counterterrorism, yeah. and um, I put that question to them as well. And their answer was, well, if you think this radicalization model doesn't work, um, which they were open to that possibility that it doesn't stand up in terms of its academic merits, then give us another model that will do the same job. Right? So they just need some kind of model? So, yeah, because they've been told you need, to have a, you need to predict. You can't just go on what someone's done. You need to go on what they're about to do. Right? That's how counterterrorism works in the United States post 9-11. So for them, it's not an option to say, okay, let's just focus on who is actively involved in preparing a terrorist plot, who is inciting terrorism, and who is financing terrorism. That would be my argument as what we should be doing here is, is just focusing on that. And that gives us enough to be getting on with and um, has the advantage that, um, you know, that we don't widen our search to uh, this kind of vague notion of ideology, right, which yeah. gets messy and uses up a whole load of resources on things that we shouldn't be worried about. Um, now, that is not an option for the FBI because that's what, that's what we as a society have told them we don't want. We don't want them to wait. We want them to be preemptive. Right? We as a society, I mean, that seems really amorphous. Isn't there some specific person who we can identify and say, that is well, the person can... who, who caused this requirement that the FBI is... I don't is... think so. I don't think so. Really? I mean, you know, I think, um, you know, I think if, if, you look at, um, if you look at the... For example, early on in the Obama administration, right, there was... Um, the so-called underwear bomber, plot, yeah. right? And if you talk to people in the Obama administration, they will talk about 
Um, that being a very scary moment for them because they felt that for a moment in the aftermath of that attempted attack, they lost the narrative, right? And they, they were very much on the defensive. And for a moment, they thought, we're going to have this thing hanging over us that we weren't tough enough on terrorism. Um, and we almost let this guy through. Um, and then they basically made a decision thereafter. We can't allow that to happen again because if that hangs over us, we lose the political capital to do all the other things we want to do, right? Yeah. So, um, and, you know, so even if you convinced people in the Obama administration to do things a different way, right, they would say our hands are tied by, by what society expects of us, the fear in society around these things, the fact that we have now created a, a, a society in which it's not enough to say um, we will minimize the risk of terrorism. You have what, this, the zero society, tolerance thing? Right. What yeah. society expects is, is absolutely no terrorist attacks of any kind at all and do everything possible with, with, you know, with unlimited resources to deal with this problem, right? Even though, you know, we don't, we don't have... So we've had um, the Boston Marathon bombing last yeah, year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, dozens of people injured and, and uh, three people killed. Um, but, you know, we have 15,000 murders every year in the United States, right? So yeah. in terms of an objective assessment of, of the amount of harm that terrorism does to US society, it would not be our top priority, right? Yeah. Um, but, um, but it has become our top priority, right? We've, you know, half of the FBI's budget is dedicated to counterterrorism. Right? But, but I don't know if that's really, uh, uh, that's an answer that just doesn't sit well with me, the idea that society has, is the one to blame when, in, when you're using a flawed radicalization model to enforce counterterrorism, which actually isn't true based off of some of the uh, findings in your book, uh, and you're reinforcing uh, stereotypes and uh, mm. you're also disseminating further fear into the American sure, client. Sure. It seems to me that uh, you're, you're the one responsible for generating the way that people react that is this very society that people point to. So, I mean, I'm just... Oh, look, I'm, I'm asking, I'm ask, I'm asking sure. for some, some... There needs to be some person, oh, some kind of yeah, element I think here. there's yeah. all kinds of different um, agencies and individuals that, that you know, um, are culpable here, right? No doubt. I mean, um, you know, from the top down, you know, from Obama, the leadership of the FBI... Um, you know, the, the whole national security apparatus, um, all of these, you know, all of these different agencies and individuals are bound up in a, um, you know, a set of practices that, that are causing um, great harm to our fellow citizens in the United States. But, um, but, you know, I would also say it's a little bit too easy just to stop there, right? I would say we have, we have all kind of got sucked into this culture of counterterrorism. This, you know, the word radicalization is not just a word that you see in academic studies and in police reports. Yeah. It's a word that is now in our everyday language in how we talk about terrorism, right? It's, it's something that, um, that, you know, we didn't need the word radicalization 15 years ago to talk about terrorism, right? But now it's the normal way that we do, we do it. So, so, you know, I, I, it's kind of, for me, a little bit too neat just to sort of pin the blame on government agencies. We need to, we need to also acknowledge that I think there's a cultural change we need in this society more widely, right? That will put pressure upon the police and the government and the academics and the policymakers to change the present uh, approach that really it's on, it's on society. That's your, that's your, that's your argument. Here, I right? think, I think, you know, well, look, I mean, I'm involved in, in campaigning, right. That that's about, um, trying to bring about policy changes, um, in this area. Right. Yeah. So 
that work is focused around, um, you know, trying to win arguments with different government agencies and so forth, bring, bring political pressure where we can to bring about those changes. But in all honesty, um, what we need more fundamentally is a different conversation in this society. You know, um, we, need a, we need a new way of talking about terrorism. Yeah. Not, we, we, I, think, I think it's time to get out of the shadow of 9-11, yeah. right? which, which understandably shaped um, a, a particular attitude towards, towards terrorism that, that made sense um, around about that time. But you know, I think now, looking back, we need to understand that 9-11 was a unique event, right? and, and, um, uh, you know, and it stands on its own in a way. And rather than seeing each new... Uh, question of terrorism as a, as a potential repetition of 9-11, I think we need to get away from that and start to look at what the situation is that we're in now. We also have this problem of all Muslims who make any kind of political statement are immediately categorized as terrorists according to this radicalization model. So if society is going to change, it seems to me that only Muslims who are willing to put themselves on the line like this and possibly invite or court the surveillance or the investigation of the FBI. They're possibly people who might change this, but it seems to me that, that we actually have to put, the, uh, we have to put this on non-Muslims. I mean, you know, what, what is the option here? Because the, the radicalization model is so perfectly set up to make uh, Muslims of any kind the bad guys. So where, where does the change in society come from? Right, and, and I mean, I think you're right that, um, you know, the, the kind of fear... Um, in the Muslim community is is um, a huge impediment to people feeling confident about addressing these issues in a public way. Um, you know, so so this is a this is about something that that is going to involve Muslims to some degree, but also non-Muslims in that conversation as well. Um, I, I guess what I would say is that right now we have this interesting moment where we're in the kind of aftermath of Edward Snowden's whistleblowing yes. around the National Security Agency. And so the debate about surveillance is taking place anyway, yeah. right? Um, a big part of this is to do with surveillance. So um, one of the things that we've seen is this quite abstract, quite legalistic debate come out of the, um, the, the reporting on Edward Snowden that, um, that kind of has this discussion about how do we balance privacy and security and so forth. And I guess what, what I would say is the way forward for us is to start to say, well, that's great that we're having this conversation now about surveillance, but let's also talk about how it affects particular communities, right? Um, we, I think when we talk about surveillance, we tend to do this thing of saying, or either, either we say, um, you know what, I think the government wouldn't really be spying on all of us in this way, and I, I, you know, I haven't got anything to hide, so I don't have a problem with this. Or at the other extreme, the government is watching everything that all of us do all the time, and so you know, there's someone sitting somewhere in Utah who's, who's monitoring what I'm typing right now on Facebook, right? Yeah, yeah. And that isn't true either. Yeah. Right? Um, so, so somewhere in between that is a, is a different picture where there's specific communities that are, that are considered suspect who are living in, a, in what you know, I think is fair to call a, an, like a police state. But then alongside that is for the majority of the population, the trappings of democracy and the usual kind of freedoms that, that we expect in this country, right? So, so that's why you have this, um, you know, you have a dichotomy of experiences there of the state, right? Where some people feel they cannot speak about politics anymore um, because of the level of surveillance they're under, their communities under, and other people, to other people that would just seem absurd that you feel like that, right? Yeah. So I think there's, a, there's some work to be done on the 
kind of on the back of this debate about surveillance that's opened up following Edward Snowden, it's a conversation to be had about um, actually defining that experience of what it's like to be an American Muslim living under surveillance, right, and getting the rest of society to understand that. Or what it's like to be, you know, to be... Um, a, a left-wing activist, yeah. right, uh, experiencing similar kinds of, of um, tactics from the government, right? So th- we've not done that work yet. That seems to me the next step. And, and once you get that conversation going, you can start to then unpick um, what drives that surveillance, right, and why that's happening and, um, and whether we want to live in a society where we, we racialize a group and then put them under intense surveillance and prevent them from talking about that experience of being racialized. You know, um, this actually has me thinking about, weirdly enough, Fred Phelps passing away recently, um, or dying would be the better word. Um, you know, here was a guy who was an outright extremist, but from that extremism, protesting the funerals of uh, soldiers who were gay uh, and that sort of thing, came an incredible movement for greater social justice and civil rights. And, and you know, uh, we're now like, you know, 16 years after Matthew Shepard's funeral, and look where, where America has gone. I'm wondering if in some way um, a kind of over-the-top extremist like this could possibly solve the present problem where Muslims are placed in this radicalization model, this flawed radicalization model, and actually this might possibly open the window to um, a greater social justice for Muslims so that they're not always uh, viewed as terrorists. Do you think there's anything along those lines that might actually work here, or...? You know, I think, um, I mean, I would, I would say that um, certainly when you look at the history of social justice movements, um, you know, a lot of the key figures there were called extremists yeah. in their day. You know, Martin Luther King wrote the letter from Birmingham jail in response to being accused of being an extremist. And he, he says, you know, initially I was, um, you know, initially I was upset at having this label put on me, but then I embraced it. And, and you know, I, and then he describes himself as an extremist for love and an extremist for justice. So that, that kind of move of, of, of saying, okay, there's this framework that's being imposed on us of are you a moderate or are you an extremist? Yeah. Um, it, rather than playing into that and, and trying to convince your accusers that actually, no, I'm a moderate, I'm a moderate, and you're never going to win that conversation, right? Because they're setting the terms that defines you. Rather than saying that, you know, uh, there is a strategy of saying, well, all right, fair enough, I'm an extremist, but I'm defining what that means on my terms now. You have to own extremist Uh, as, you know, queers own queer. Absolutely, right. So then it's a way of undermining that discourse that's framing you according to, um, you know, according to a discourse that is ultimately aimed at undermining your rights. So so, um, that kind of move, if you like the Malcolm X move as well, right, um, is um, I think, um, it, you know, I think it's an important thing to think about. Um, I'm not sure that we can see that uh, happening at the moment in the United States. Certainly you can in the UK. There's figures who, 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 um, who certainly take that approach in the UK. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, one of the things that's happened is, is, is that, you know, the, the U.S. Muslim population is incredibly diverse, right? It has a, a lot of different um, national origins. People estimate that about a third of, Afri- of Muslims are African-American. Um, 
and it has a, a diversity in terms of its class background. So um, for every you know Muslim taxi driver, there's a Muslim doctor living in the suburbs, right? Now for those for those people living in the suburbs up until 9-11, they'd kind of more or less adopted this kind of model minority way of thinking about themselves. And, um, and then they get a shock after 9-11, right, that now they're being perceived, at least in some contexts, as the enemy. And their, their kind of class status doesn't really help them very much with that. So, um, so those people tended to take this approach of, you know what, I'm just going to keep my head down after 9-11, wave the American flag and, and hope this goes away soon, right? And now we're, you know, almost 13 years down the road and it's still here, in fact, in some ways worse. So people are starting to realise that strategy doesn't work. Right? Yeah. And so people are now looking at, okay, well, we have this African-American Muslim population who've come out of a particular political history of civil rights organising of black power. Maybe there's things we can take from there to start thinking about how we respond politically to this situation. Right? So these are, it's in a kind of interesting moment where these dynamics are starting to unfold and, and we don't know where they're going. But I think the um, undermining this, this kind of narrative of are you a good Muslim or a bad Muslim is going to be an important part of the response. Sure. Uh, we have been concentrating mostly on American uh, problems of this, and I have to get into the UK problems. Uh, the Preventing Violent Extremism, uh, better known as Prevent, this was launched under the new Labour government in 2006. Uh, the idea here was for the government to work with Muslim communities to weed out the counterterrorism that they expected to find, uh, the considerable largesse devoted to prevent even inspired arts events, uh, arts projects, uh, an organization called Radical Middle Way, which organized a roadshow of Islamic scholarship to counter the extremist propaganda. Why did the UK government expect to find extremists? And why were the Salafis roped into this? Uh, what's also interesting is we're talking about uh, Tony Blair uh, stepping this up and also Obama stepping this up. Why does this seem to come from the left more often than the right? Yeah, I mean, you know, this, these kinds of um, the, these kinds of policies, what, what um, policymakers call counter-radicalization policies, tend to be um, promoted more enthusiastically by the left and by liberals, right? Because they use the language of partnership, of empowerment, of um, integration, right? They're not about trying to um, push Muslims to the margins of society in a very kind of exclusionary way. They're about saying, how can we assimilate this population, right? To, to depoliticize them and therefore assimilate them as a you know, as a, uh, a group of people who are no longer a threat to our society, right? That's the kind of reasoning. So, um, you know, the, the, um, the policy program in the UK had um, a huge, huge budget um, that was about trying to um, promote a certain counter-extremism narrative within the community and, and basically recruiting community leaders to promote that narrative. And what that narrative was, was... Not, you know, it was, it was kind of complex, but a part of it at least was um, do not speak out against foreign policy. Do not criticise British society. Um, integrate yourself um, into, into British values, that kind of narrative. Yeah. Well, you also point out that our television narratives, things like Homeland, uh, the only Muslims who are allowed to interject any kind of political viewpoint are, of course, the terrorists um, in the form of Dick Brody in that show. Are these narratives playing into what is likely to appeal to the public? What is the public's lack of Islamic understanding, this whole situation we were describing earlier of society being the one thing that is preventing uh, Muslims from being um, perceived correctly, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, well, I think, I think um, you know, if you think about who are the Muslims that we see on television... Right. Um, 
uh, when you get some some attempt to put Muslims on television that looks looks different, it attracts protest, right? I mean, that's the kind of state of affairs we're in. So there was a series called um, All American Muslim that, that was actually shut down because yeah. uh, there was campaigners putting pressure on the advertisers. Yeah. Um, that was a, a TV program that tried to show Muslims as just regular Americans living in Dearborn in Michigan. Um, so, so in the absence of anything like that, instead you have, um, you know, you have the, well, you had for, for in some cases the, um, the kind of stereotype kind of Arab or Muslim terrorist that goes back um, to at least the 1990s. Homeland is interesting because it, it comes across as a much more sophisticated kind of um, TV program. Um, it's not 24 where you have this kind of relentless use of torture. It's about... A longer process of investigation. It's about. Um, it's the Obama New Labour form of television. It's exactly. It's it's if if 24 was the Bush War on Terror, Homeland is is Obama's War on Terror, right? And in fact, Obama considers it one of his t- favorite TV programs and yeah. considers it realistic, which is interesting, right? Um, but um, you know, but but then when you look at it a little bit more deeply at what how the program constructs what it means to be a Muslim, then essentially you're a terrorist, um, and. Um, uh, you know, or you work maybe for the CIA, but there's nothing in between that, right? Yeah. Um, so it's very much, again, this kind of um, dichotomy of the moderate Muslim and the extremist Muslim. Um, and within that, being able to be a Muslim who is a political activist or a citizen of the United States articulating certain opinions is just not going to um, fit in that. In yeah. that dichotomy. Well, we mentioned the Somalis earlier, and I was really fascinated by your chapter on the Somali population in the Twin Cities. Uh, this is the largest Somali population in North America. Many of the Somali immigrants are suffering from trauma because of the Civil War. Uh, Al-Shabaab, which you mentioned earlier, there was this case of 21 young men who disappeared. Um, and while the feds responded to this with Operation Rhino, they infiltrated homes and mosques. They compiled lists. They hoped to recruit informants. Uh, there were guys like Congressman Peter King. He is uh, chair of the House Homeland Security Committee. Uh, and he's fond of suggesting that 80% of the mosques in this country are controlled by radical imams. Uh, he claimed that the Council on American-Islam Relations, which was attempting to protect the constitutional right of the Somali population with legal representation, well, they were fostering this spirit of non-cooperation with the FBI. Uh, The question that I think needs to be asked is why, I mean, we kind of have addressed it a little bit in the sense of uh, the radicalization model that the FBI is using, but why was Operation and many of the local efforts, why were they so aggressive? You mentioned AIMCOP in St. Paul, which uh, was partially funded in 2009 by a $670,000 grant. How much of law enforcement tenure is dictated by power and money? How much of this was a continuation of counter-radicalization efforts set into place after 9-11? Right. I mean, I think, I think um, what was interesting to me about that, that time I spent in Minnesota and doing the research there on, uh, on this particular moment, um, you know, it, it's, in some ways it's, it's unique because... Um, because of the relationship with al-Shabaab, right? But, but actually, in many ways, it's also just a typical moment, right? It's, it's very similar to what happened in Queens, New York, after um, the arrest of Najibullah Zazi, that attempted plot um, uh, a decade or so ago. Um, whenever you get one of these moments where um, it's what the, the, um, the FBI call a post-boom moment, the moment after there's been an attempted terrorist plot, um, you have this clampdown on the community, 
um, where everyone who was in any way associated um, with the with any suspects, you know, friends of friends, is is subjected to interrogation. All kinds of information gathered about that person's life, and um, you know, you have the this kind of period of time after the after um, the attempted plot or whatever the original incident is, where that whole community kind of is locked down and shut down, right? Um, and that's what that's what we saw in in the Twin Cities, um, you know, at, at that time. Um, and we saw it after the Boston Marathon bombing with yeah, the um, with the Chechen community, right? Where um, where you know the FBI um, chased after um, you know that that community and went and went and uh, conducted these kind of what they call informal interviews, um, you know, up and down the East Coast. Um, so these are these are kind of standard moments. Well, they're standard moments, but are they dictated by power and money? Because I mentioned the grant yeah. of AIMCOP and all that. Yeah. And that, well, that is fascinating because it just if you've got this huge grant and you want to keep on getting the grants, you're going to subscribe to the flawed models because you need to get more money. Sure. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's obviously incentive structures for your local police department um, to, to buy into this stuff. Um, because there's money behind it. That's, there's no doubt about that. And, and you know, some of the law enforcement people that I interviewed were quite frank about that yeah. off the record. Um, you know, to the extent where... Um, FBI and NYPD on the radicalization models? Is there some sort of financial component involved with that? Um, I don't know about them, but, you know, certainly other, you know, lo- other local police departments around the country that I interviewed, yeah. you, would, you would hear the comment that, look, the, the Department of Homeland Security... Throwing all this money at grants and all that, yeah. right? Uh, for these grants, where we can buy ourselves new computers, where we can buy ourselves some kind of armored car, you know, yeah. for counterterrorism purposes in the middle of nowhere. Um, and if we can do that and then use that stuff for something else, then we'll do it, you know. Um, so there is that definitely going on. Um, you know, the, the creation of fusion centers, these so-called intelligence fusion centers, where there's dozens of them around the country now that were meant to be a place where um, intelligence is shared between different agencies locally. Um, you know, most commentators think that they haven't actually contributed anything at all to counterterrorism in the United States, and yet we have spent, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars setting that up um, from the, with Department of Homeland Security money. Um, so, so those kinds of things are there, right? Um, the um, but if you want to, I mean, if you want to understand why um, why the FBI comes in into into the Twin Cities and and um, you know does this very um, intense um, kind of um, clampdown on the community, it's not about it's not about um, you know it's not about that local field office's funding or anything. It's just this is this is what is you know, how the FBI operates, that comes from D.C., top-down policy. Um, on any terrorist incident, this is how you run it. And, um, you know, it's about saying we, we cannot, it can't, you know, the Obama administration is saying we cannot allow any terrorist incident um, to, um, to derail our, our political agenda, right? That's how they look at it. So, so that means they're sending the message to the FBI, you know, do everything you can. Right when something like this happens, where some kids have gone over to Somalia, if there's even the smallest possible chance that one of those kids is coming back to America and doing something here, right? Um, you know, you have to do everything you can to prevent that, um, and um, and that means you know interviewing not just that kid's family, but everyone that knew him and everyone that knew them, 
and anyone um, of the same age and everyone that went to that kid's college who's Somali, you know, it's that kind of thinking because one of those people might have some important information. So why wouldn't you interview them, right? But if I wanted to be a cynic or perhaps a realist, I would sort of suggest that local police departments have an extra incentive to continue with these measures because of the DHS grants. That if they uh, want to get if they want to get absolutely. the bennies of the uh, uh, elaborate equipment, uh, the you know the anti tank stuff. Oh, then, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, there's no doubt. As I say, that was something that that you can get. You can you can actually hear from from the um, you know the chiefs of local police departments yeah. themselves off the record yeah. and. Um, uh, you know, certainly, if you look at the, the program you, that you just mentioned earlier, in, in that the St. Paul Police yeah. Department runs this so-called AIMCOP program, which is a, a counter-terrorist program they run. Um, you know, the guy, the guy who set it up, um, it, you can see that he's he's making a pitch to to central government, to, to federal government, saying um, we can do counter-terrorism. You may not think of our cosy little local police department as playing a role, but we do play a role precisely because we're not the FBI. We have a better set of relationships with the local community, and they're of use in counterterrorism. So give us some money as well. We want to get in on the game. You can kind of, you can kind of hear that pitch being made from him, right? So, um, and and as a result of that money coming in, um, you know, in a cash-strapped local police department that's low on resources from from the city council in St Paul, suddenly all the officers are now on overtime, right? Yeah. Um, so you, there's obviously those those kind of incentives going on. Yeah. So if the FBI or the DHS were to suddenly have a more airtight radicalization model, one that perhaps illustrated that uh, the present radicalization model does not lead to terrorism, that was almost unanimously unanimously accepted by policy experts, by the public, would this be enough to stop some of these law enforcement policies? Or, uh, given the money question, would it essentially be ignored? What do you think? I mean, you know, I think, I think if you... If you take out the radicalization analysis from the picture, um, you take away the rationale for widespread surveillance, right? Because you're no longer looking for these supposed indicators that yeah. someone's on a pathway to being a terrorist. Um, you take away the rationale for a lot of the kind of sting operations um, and entrapment operations. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, you take away some of the rationale for prosecutions under the material support for terrorism. Um, legislation. So, so then I think um, you know you're left with a, a picture that looks a lot significantly better than where we're at now in terms of protecting civil rights and being more effective in how we do counterterrorism. Um, Industries have already been put into place, so therefore you need to figure out methods of keeping them in place because there's to, to shatter them down. If if the models themselves are flawed, uh, would be catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, I have I have. Uh, all kinds of ideas about what we could be doing with those resources, yeah. right? If if we free them up, um, so we're not we're not spending money on uh, you know armoured cars in in a local police department, and if we no longer need um, bogus terrorism studies departments in universities, you know what we could have some university departments that do some more serious research about the victims of, of violence um, over the, over the years, yeah. um, which is which is something we don't do if we want to have academic studies of violence. Um, you know, we could use some of those resources that we're wasting on on bogus counterterrorism policing on on maybe healthcare or schools. Well, sure, but that seems to be a sort of a pie in the sky remedy, I think. <laughs> um, or is or 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 is it? Well, you know, I mean, I think um, I you know, I think we 
are in a in a place where um, those kinds of arguments are becoming plausible. I think actually, right? It might. It, it, it's you know. Um, Given the kind of level of inequality, economic inequality in America right now, um, I think one of the things that, that we're going to see is, is more and more people talking along these lines of, of actually questioning why are we spending huge resources on our criminal justice system for very little return, right? And, and maybe that money would be better spent on, on um, you know, social, social needs rather than, um, you know, this kind of cycle of fear and, and, and police response. Gotcha. Uh, I want to actually get into the Muslim Brotherhood a little bit. Uh, okay. It was once considered by the Obama administration to be an extremist organization until it was seen with the presidential election of Mohammed Morsi, uh, although things went south pretty quick, as a way of providing stability to Egypt. The U.S. government later gave its blessing to the military coup with Secretary of State John Kerry describing it as restoring democracy. Outside the role of providing stability to a volatile region, are Western nations capable of viewing the Brotherhood in more subtle terms? How can such a perspective be reworked? Is there anything we could take away from that particular episode? Um, you know, I think I think the um, there's a long history going right through the Cold War of um, you know of kind of um, policy planners in in Washington. Um, Looking at the Muslim Brotherhood through a very instrumental lens, right? Of um, are they allies in the Cold War? Um, are they enemies in the War on Terror? And and th- and that's the only real question that gets asked: Can they can they work for us, or do they work for the, the other side? Um, so so you know, at certain points in the Cold War, the Muslim Brotherhood were in a close relationship with CIA in uh, in Egypt, and um, and then under the Bush administration, they are. Um, criminalized in the United States and seen as um, a kind of incubator of terrorism um, and and then um, you know and then you have this moment um, uh, after after the um, the Egyptian um, revolution in 2011 um, after the overthrow of Mubarak where you you sense that in the White House and the State Department policymakers are kind of playing catch-up and just trying to kind of make sense of this these events and they reach out to the Muslim Brotherhood as a way of, you know, of maybe trying to keep in the game in, in Egypt, you know, and, um, and and still having some influence there, um, and and also see the Brotherhood as as a force that can stabilise that society. So in that moment, actually, you get in the kind of mainstream media, you do get a more nuanced analysis, right? So, um, you know, from from mainstream commentators, you start to see this attempt to. Um, Think of the Muslim Brotherhood in more nuanced terms. Um, Mohammed Morsi, the leader, um, you know, gets presented as almost like a, you know, a kind of all-American guy, um, and um, and so, you know, I think that, but I think that reflects just the the um, that particular moment when um, the Muslim Brotherhood is seen as potentially useful in um, in U.S. foreign policy in regard to Egypt at that time. Um, and then, and then, effectively, the, the Brotherhood fails to deliver the stability that that the U.S. government is ex, is expecting from them, and so then they're kind of dropped. Um, yeah. And um, and with the the coup last year, um, you know, um, they uh, they uh, the criminalization of the Brotherhood is is kind of um, given a green light yeah. by by Washington. So a possibility of greater understanding is essentially uh, uprooted here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think the, 
the, the problem is that, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood are um, themselves somewhat, um, you know, I would say flexible in their kind of political identity as well, right? So, so they have, they have, part of the reason they've survived so long in a, in a very harsh political environment is their adaptability and their kind of ability to shift their, their kind of, um, if not their fundamental ideology, at least their kind of tactics at a particular moment, right? So, sure. um, it, you know, so, but I think it's, you know, it should be possible for, for um, US policymakers to, to kind of get a, a better understanding of, of what's going on with them. Um, yeah. We talked about how some of these ideas infiltrate uh, into institutions and into government, and I wanted to actually bring up the Sharia conspiracy theory, which you deal at length with in the book. It's this idea promulgated by neoconservatives such as Daniel Pipes and David mm-hmm. Horowitz uh, and pushed further into the public sphere by various bloggers and far-right activists mm-hmm. that uh, Islamist terrorism is the beginning of a hidden jihad. Uh, how were people like... Robert Spencer and Frank Gaffney, how are they able to infiltrate the mainstream? Why were they taken seriously by the national security establishment? If so many people were willing to buy into the Sharia conspiracy theory, what can we do to combat this? Right. Well, you know, um, the, you know I mean, I think, I think the reason that, that um, this, this conspiracy theory gets some play within um, official circles in Washington is because it chimes with um, kind of underlying assumptions that we already have in place, both, you know, at the far right, but also amongst liberals, right? So if you if you've already accepted that there's some kind of um, you know there's some kind of religious extremism out there in Muslim communities that is the root cause of, of terrorism and um, and so forth, then you're already halfway there, right? So then if someone comes along and says, well, you know what, look at this guy who's who's um, in government, he seems to be saying some things that um, that you know also seem extremist. So, you know, how far does this go? And you're, you're kind of you're getting drawn into it. Um, I mean, I think I think um, for me, it's useful to think about uh, this particular kind of conspiracy theory um, in comparison with the Jewish conspiracy theories that were kind of hugely significant in 20th century history. Um, so with, with the Jewish conspiracy, you have the same kind of model where you say that Jews are, um, you know, there's a secret cabal of Jews who are manipulating world events um, uh, behind the scenes, but then also Jews are positioned as the kind of subclass, the kind of degenerates who are, who are kind of corrupting society from below. So it has this double structure of being both an elite and a subclass. And that's exactly what we see now with Islamophobia, where, you know, the most powerful man in the world is secretly a Muslim who's, who's imposing Sharia law on America. Um, and at the same time, Muslims are this kind of backward, primitive underclass that's corrupting society from below. So um, that doesn't mean that we're going to see, um, you know, in the coming decades, um, the same things that Jews experienced in the 20th century. That doesn't necessarily follow. But um, but the, the kind of logical structure of these conspiracy theories is the same in anti-Semitism of the 20th century and Islamophobia in our century. Yeah. Um, so... Um, you know how do we how do we challenge that? I mean, I think I think we um, first thing was we need to understand these kinds of forms of Islamophobia within that broader context of the history of different kinds of racisms, right? Um, and um, 
and you know and then i think we need to talk i think we need to actually just start talking about this stuff because i don't think we've even named this stuff as you know a conspiracy theory right yeah. we we have a debate as if it's t as if you know you can agree and disagree with this stuff in some kind of intellectual conversation but we're talking about uh, you know a conspiracy theory that's part of a structure of racist discourse here right so i think actually naming these things having the conversation about what's going on here um understanding it in its historical context and then building a building um you know building coalitions and alliances between uh, muslims who are experiencing um the 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 kind of institutional effects of the war on terror and um you know the and other communities who are experiencing the institutional effects of the war on immigration or the war on drugs right which have certain parallels and overlaps with each other building those kinds of alliances that aren't just about you know kind of some kind of uh you know let's all kind of um stand alongside each other to to increase our numbers it's not about that it's it's about saying we you know the system is is one that is imposing similar things on all of us whether we're african-american whether we're muslim whether we're uh latino those are there's kind of parallels in the structures there you also have this case of the english defense league mm -hmm. in the uk uh it's essentially this populist movement that was in fact uh a <laughs> promoted by Prime Minister David Cameron that the liberal multicultural elite is interceding in the fight against Muslim extremism, which is interesting in light of what we have identified of Obama and, right. and Tony Blair. Um, the EDL insists that it isn't racist. Why was the EDL so receptive to Cameron's message, and how was it able to adopt a familiar style of presentation, one that adopted socialist slogans, black and white united fight, mm -hmm. and terrorist organization video aesthetics without any apparent self-awareness. That's really the thing that's really <laughs> weird there. I mean, I, I think some of the smarter people in the EDO are very aware of what they're doing, and, that, and they're deliberately um, appropriating this imagery, right? Because it's by, you know, by use, you know a, a group that, um, that has a neo-Nazi ideology in Britain, right, very quickly gets discredited, right? Because... I mean, no one likes Nazis who went to war against them, yeah. right? So, um, if you can if you can find a way um, of presenting um, some kind of similar far right ideology, but make it seem like actually it's anti fascism, that's going to be a very clever strategy. And in a, in a way, that's what the English Defence League attempted. I don't think they pulled it off because um, no matter what the uh, you know no matter what the website says. Um, the people turning up to the demonstrations were still the same old-fashioned neo-Nazis, right? Yeah. So um, it didn't have any credibility. But the the you know the the, the ideology that the um, that they came up with had that had that interesting development of trying to appropriate anti-fascist ideas for a fascist cause, right? Um, in in Europe, we have you know you have this phenomenon now of um, of far-right parties across Europe who are doing well in elections, right? And the standard analysis is that um, that because of um, people's frustrations around um, the European Union and, and frustrations around the economy, they're turning to the far-right, and that is pulling the whole political spectrum further to the right as, as mainstream parties have to respond to that, right? Actually, what you see is, in, in many ways, is the opposite when you look at a group like the English Defence League. It's not that mainstream politics is being pulled to the right by a fringe party. What's happening is, is the fringe party is being empowered by being able to 
borrow from the mainstream language of the war on terror. Yeah. Right? So the, you know, if you look at the English Defence League's um, uh, website, it uses government language. It talks about we don't, um, we don't, you know, have a problem with all Muslims. We distinguish between moderate Muslims and extremist Muslims. We're just opposed to extremism. It uses all of that same language. Um, all it adds to the to the the official language is it says, you know, like the government says, we are um, involved in a in a war against extremist Islam. Yeah. But we don't believe that the government is doing a very good job of it. We think it's kind of still, you know, uh, wrapped up in all kinds of multiculturalist platitudes. So we will do our own war on the streets. Right. That's essentially what they're saying. But what's striking is how much of their discourse is actually borrowed from official language. Yeah. So what would you say is the most promising development of Muslims being treated as non-terrorist, being allowed to express their political views, being essentially left alone by law enforcement? Is there any kind of thing you could point to that that shows that they won't be debased like this, that they can actually be uh, as much of a citizen as anybody else? Right. So I think, think, well, there's, there's... You know, a couple of really interesting um, things that have happened in the last year or so that I think do point to, you know, some of those kind of positive stories. So um, in New York, where, you know, estimates of it, something like maybe 10 percent of the population identifies as Muslim, we saw um, over the last year um, a very effective mobilization by by um, Muslim New Yorkers to um, address the issues of the surveillance that they were experiencing from the New York Police Department. And that became part of the mayoral campaign yeah. last year uh, and played into um, part of the reason why um, de Blasio was able to win support from that community. Um, and we don't know where that will go in terms of what that means in terms of policy changes um, over this year. But the fact that it, you know, it could be mobilised as an issue in an election... Um, where both candidates were dependent on those votes, right, was, I think, um, incredibly interesting and powerful. Um, And then um, we had a similar kind of thing happen in Los Angeles um, uh, a few years back um, where there was a similar campaign that successfully ended an attempted um, introduction of a new surveillance program in Los Angeles and um, it was a successful campaign to prevent that from actually being implemented, right? So we're starting to see these these kind of... um, political moments of, of successful campaigning opening up. Um, so I think that's, you know, starting to point to um, a, a more positive way of um, approaching these issues. And, and in both cases, it's, it's been important that um, those, that the, the Muslim organisations have been able to build alliances with other campaigns around policing, right? And that's been, that's been part of the reason they've been effective. That's great, but is that really enough? Um, well, it's a start. I think it's a start of something that we're going to be seeing more and more of um, over the coming years. I think I think there's um, an increasing number of people who no longer just want to kind of keep their heads down and wait for this stuff to go away. Um, you, you know, we have a, um, a a lot of young Muslims who are who are you know just now coming into college, right, in America. Um, it's that generation of people whose whose parents maybe migrated here. Um, in the 90s, um, and now and now their kids are coming to college, um, and those kids are you know born and bred in this country. Um, they consider themselves to be equal citizens, and they're no longer going to 
I think be as willing to just tolerate a lot of this stuff and, and think that it's you know something they can just put up with and wait for it to disappear. So I think we're going to see see a lot more of this kind of activism um, and, and um, a lot more of this kind of alliance building and I, and I think that is how um, we're going to get to a, um, a better place. Well Arun, this is a pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time out. Thank you. My All right. Hey, thanks. Okay. Good night, baby. Someone's coming.